As we look at this this morning, I want to read the passage to you. You can read along silently. And my hope would be that, as I believe is always the case, that by and large, our, our collective effort as a local body of believers, as a, a church, together, is to read, to understand, and really to apply the text of Scripture in a way that honors Christ, results in our sanctification, and ultimately results in the evangelism of the unbeliever, all for God's glory. So read along silently, if you would, as I read. 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 16. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I suspect that every single one of you at some point in his or her life, as is the case with me, has been very frustrated with what seems to be an inability to grow spiritually. You feel stalemated. You think that somehow other Christians are growing, you see it taking place in their lives, and yet you're wondering, will I ever get past this particular besetting sin? That's kind of the old school way to refer to it. Those besetting sins that not only haunt us, but seem to restrain us in our spiritual growth. Uh, If you can relate to that, you are not alone. I can relate to that. There are even times now in my life where I think, my goodness, uh, how is it that I still struggle with these same sins that I struggled with 20 years ago? I want to make a statement that could sound uh, proud, it could sound arrogant, it might even sound boastful, but I think it's important to you know that as a pastor, uh, and maybe even equally important as your brother in Christ, you need to know that I win the battle. I need to know that you are winning the battle with sin. That's why I teach, that's why I shepherd, that's why I counsel, that's why I minister to you, but that is also why you, uh, in the calling that God has placed on your life with your particular giftedness, exercise those gifts because you believe that there is hope for sanctification, that you can win the battle. Now, I want to be very clear and say, I'm not telling you that I have full mastery over my sin and that it never takes place. If you've spent five minutes with me, you know that's not true. But it is important. In fact, I believe it is the norm in the faithful local church that Christians master their sin. They gain victory. And that victory then brings about encouragement. And so the practices that lead to that victory become more of a rhythm in that person's life. The person who's not gotten into that rhythm is discouraged. And if that's you, be encouraged that I promise you every single person in this room has been there and maybe, uh, maybe more than we would know are discouraged even today. But again, my hope is that as we look at this text, and I, and I want to do it faithfully, I know you want to do it faithfully, we don't want to use this text to uh, persuade others, I certainly don't want to use this text to persuade anyone of my personal traditional theological beliefs but that as we look at it together, we would see what God has said through the Apostle Peter, and that as a result, what Peter commands of us this morning in this text would actually be increasingly true. I believe that it is true. My hope is that it would be increasingly true. What am I talking about? I'm talking about holiness. The command is be holy. And, and you, might, you might look at that and say, Wow, man, that is so far from my way of thinking right now that I'm not even sure I can care what that means. I think you do care what that means. But it can be a struggle. It can be a difficulty to arrive at the place where you are in the kind of rhythm that results in an increasing personal holiness. There is a movement today within true Christendom, within the Christian church, that says that this does not happen, that you do not increase in personal holiness, that God has 
presented and imputed holiness to you, and it never changes, it never increases. And so you don't do anything. God has already done it all. And so your role is to let go, and everybody say it with me, let God. This is commonly referred to as Keswick theology, and it is a lie. And it is a hopeless and desperate condition to find oneself in that way of thinking. You might look at others and say, well, well, you know, it seems as if that person is in some sort of spiritual growth rhythm. It would appear that that person is growing and honoring Christ and enjoying that. And there are others who seem to not care, and I get that because they're not trying at all. I find myself somewhere in the middle because I want to grow. I'm not seeing the growth I would like to see. I'm certainly not the person that doesn't care, but I am kind of at a loss. Years ago had the privilege to minister to a substantial number of people who, as best I could tell, had not been exposed to expository preaching. And so my regular comment was the, the best expression, the best explanation of spiritual growth, sanctification, I believe, is in Romans 6 through 8. And so in my counseling, I would emphasize Romans 6 through 8. Go to Romans 6 through 8 and had a man come to me a couple years later, dear man, I believe he loves the Lord, loves the Word, loves the church. And he said, I want you to know that that whole thing about Romans 6, 8, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't see myself growing. I don't see my wife growing. And we have read through Romans 6 through 8 at least four times. In, in my effort to encourage him, I said, well, thank you for, number one, pointing out the fact that my efforts were not as what I had hoped they would be. But please let me tell you that I'm not wrong about where sanctification is explained in the Scripture. You need to hang in there, and you need to surround yourself with people who will hang in there. Because it's not a problem with Romans 6 through 8. It's a problem with me, and it's a problem with you. And so we need to encourage each other to stay in Romans 6 through 8. We need to encourage each other to understand the teaching of Scripture that leads to spiritual growth. I think a lot of the frustration, a lot of the disunity, a lot of the incompatibility, a lot of the, the, the difficulties that take place in local churches where people truly know Christ is a result of the fact that the teaching is not explaining how sanctification works. And it's a mystery. And people will say, well, everybody disagrees on how sanctification works. I, I don't get it. I don't understand. I don't see other people growing. I don't see myself growing. So bag it all. This is not a new topic in the Christian church, and rest assured that there have been Christians for 2,000 years who have grown in sanctification. And so the faithfulness of Jesus Christ is such that you can grow spiritually. You can grow spiritually. And I would say that if you're in Christ, if you have been in Christ for any substantial period of time, you have grown spiritually, but it doesn't happen by default much it doesn't happen by default much in other words if if you're not engaged for the purpose of your sanctification you will as the person who sits on a bicycle and doesn't pedal fall over rest assured that that will be the case you must be engaged let me just cite one passage before we get into our text philippians 2 verse 12 Paul there says, you who have always obeyed. He's speaking to people who have had a pattern of obedience in their lives. You who have always obeyed, work out your salvation. That is a command to be involved in your sanctification. Work out your salvation. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work. Those two things, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And his good pleasure is found in that work that's taking place in you. Now, one more thing before we get into our text. I can tell you with exuberant joy that the Lord is doing a sanctifying work in the people in our church. As I look around the room, I look you in the eye, I, I can recall times where the Lord has done a work in your life that has produced great joy in me. The Lord sanctifies you. I see it. I'm encouraged. The Lord sanctifies me. You say, wow, finally, you're encouraged. And we all experience that joy together. We 
want to trust that the Lord will continue to do that in us, even as we look at this all-important text together this morning. Well, point number one. Diligently hope in God's grace. Diligently hope in God's grace. Peter says, uh, therefore... The word therefore, of course, connects what has been said with what is about to be said. Peter is saying, what I am about to say is based on what I have been telling you. Or, I've said all that to say this. Many will divide up the book of Romans or the book of Colossians or the book of Philippians, the book of 1 Thessalonians into two parts, theology and practice. And that's not a wrong thing to do. In fact, if you look at Romans 1 through 11, you see pretty essential didactic theology it's instructive teaching and then when you look at verses 12 and forward through verse uh, uh, chapter 12 through 16 you see the practical manifestation of what that looks like you see that in colossians you see that in philippians you see that in first thessalonians here we have an expression of the theology of salvation in first peter 1 up through verse 12 and then now this all-important command in this case peter has declared the greatness of the believer's salvation now with very specific instructions he calls him to respond to you who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of god the father by the sanctifying work of the spirit to obey jesus christ and be sprinkled with his blood to you who by the great mercy of god and Father of Lord Jesus Christ, have been caused to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. To you who greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. To you who have not seen him, but love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. To you to whom God's grace has come, grace that was prophesied by Old Testament prophets, who made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow, prophets who were not serving themselves but you, to you to whom the gospel has been preached by those moved along by the Holy Spirit, those who preached a gospel into which angels long to look, to you all of those things therefore do this." D. Edmund Hebert has said, the transforming experience of salvation and its hope of future glory should be the driving force in daily duty. But grace must first be experienced before the obligations of grace become operative. In other words, the person who has not experienced grace has no interest in the duties given to us in the scripture years ago i remember a friend saying to me you know i I hate new year's resolutions i think they're worthless it's a waste of time and i said well what about all the resolutions in the bible he said what do you mean i said every time david says i will i will sing to the lord i will meditate on his word i will repent of my sin those are resolutions you're resolving to do something he said oh well i just don't like doing it you know on december 31st I said, well, what about December 30th? What about December 29th? What about January 1st, January 2nd? Yeah, 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 whatever. Well, the idea, though, is that resolutions are a part of the Christian life because we've been given commands. We've been given imperatives. It is imperative that you do this. That's what an imperative is. God has told us to do something. And so we have a duty to respond. 
That's really what this is. But if you have received God's grace, you long to obey those commands. You love to fulfill those duties. It's not a burden. Jesus says, my yoke is light. I shouldn't have said it's not a burden. It is a burden, but it's a light burden. It's an enjoyable burden. The duty to which you and I are called is much like the duty of things that you can relate to in your own life now that bring you great joy. When you think of eating that favorite meal that your favorite cook has prepared for you, you have to lift the fork. You've got to close your teeth together. You've got to do something. There's work involved. And yet it's worth it. If you simply said, well, I, I'm so glad that you prepared that meal for me, but you know, I just don't think duty is really what I'm called to. That's legalism. And you're missing out on what God has granted to you. And you're doing so foolishly. But the commands of the Scripture given to us are given to us because by His grace, we not only can fulfill them, we can enjoy them. And that is His heart for us. So Peter says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Isn't that interesting? Prepare your minds for action? What then is he talking about? He's obviously talking about action of the mind. Things that take place in your head. Things that you do internally. Literally, preparing or girding up the loins of your mind is what Peter says here. Loins can be the waist, can be the reproductive organs, it can be the middle section. D. Edmund Hebert says that Calvin remarked that Peter doubles the metaphor by ascribing loins to the mind. The attribution of loins, the seer of the strength of the body, to the mind establishes that the picture relates not to physical, but to strong mental activity. End quote. So to be involved in the action of the mind. What's the word we would use to kind of boil that down? To think. To think. I don't remember a whole lot about my grandfather's office, but one thing that I remember that I always saw when I walked in and sat down was this little plaque on the front of the desk, and it didn't have his name on it. It had one word on it, and it was the word think. I wish I had that. I'd put that on my desk. Think. This is what the Christian is called to do. And yet, not only outside of the church, but many times in the church, there is this declaration that we're not called to think. We're just called to have faith. And by the way, blind faith. You have been given a written document that is clear and understandable. And the privilege that you and I have is to be able to understand it. And I believe the, the words Peter has for us this morning are in fact understandable and life-altering. This idea of girding up one's loins should conjure up thoughts of a soldier in ancient times who would prepare for battle by gathering up his tunic or robe and securing it so as to prevent tripping or entanglement. The word for mind here denotes the processes of the mind. It denotes a way of thinking, the heart, the intentions, thought patterns. So this is a call to a diligent, entanglement-free thought life. Think of it as mental exercise leading to increasingly right thinking and resultant spiritual success. It means you must be disciplined. But the reward is great. In Romans 12, verse 2, Paul says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, not your feelings, your mind. He says in Colossians 3, 2, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things above. That are on earth. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, Paul says to Timothy, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Every pastor should think heartily and regularly and daily about that passage. It should be that which pressures him into diligently studying so as to accurately represent the truth of God's heart as he's given it to us in his word. Not pandering to the desires of the human flesh. I don't like that you said this. I don't like that you said that. But sticking closely 
as a, an unashamed workman to what the Scripture actually says. That does not bypass the mind. But too often, frequently, in fact, there will be the temptation to bypass the mind, to allow the Scripture to bypass the mind, avoid the reality of what the grammar actually says, and allow it to say something that's easily, much more easily swallowed. So clinging to the truth of the Scripture requires that one engage his own mind. In Job 38, verse 36, Who has put wisdom in the innermost being or given understanding to the mind? It's Job's words regarding the heart of God and how he deals with man and gives wisdom to him. Psalm 26, verse 2, Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. Psalm 16, verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. That's great hope for overcoming problems in your dream life. See, I don't know why these thoughts keep coming back. They keep coming back. They keep coming back. They're ungodly. They don't really represent what I would like for the contents of my mind to be. Set your mind on things above. The Lord will eventually do away with those things that are dishonoring to Him in your mind. But it is a result of diligently focusing on and pouring into your mind the truth of who God is and what He has required of us. Proverbs 18, 15, The mind of the prudent acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Proverbs twenty two seventeen, Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise, and apply your mind to my knowledge. Isaiah 26, verse 3, The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace, because he trusts in you. In Matthew 16, verse 21, these words regarding the Apostle Peter in his lack of willingness to engage his mind rightly. Listen to this. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. You see, no man would come up with the doctrine of sovereignty, right? No man would create a doctrine that displays the glories of God and befuddles man in his thinking that God must fit his blueprint rather than the other way around. And this was what was going on with Peter. Peter was really disgusted with the reality of God's sovereignty finding its way into his life and even into Jesus' life. And so he rebuked Jesus. Jesus' clear statement was, you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. And then a few chapters later in Matthew 22, you know this passage well, verse 35. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. It is an engagement of the cerebral element of your life. In Acts 1, verse 14 these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. You wonder why disunity takes place within the body? It is many times because there are those who will not engage their minds subject to the Scripture. That's obviously not always the case, but many times that's the case. Personal preference with regard to emphasis in the pulpit, with regard to emphasis in philosophy of ministry, with regard to emphasis in the children's ministry, with regard to emphasis in the men's ministry or the women's ministry or whatever ministry. So division results because something other than the pure text of Scripture has become the standard of truth. But if we were to be as the early Christians displayed in the book of Acts, we would find devoting our minds to the same truths of God's Word 
unity would always prevail. In Acts 2, verse 44, And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Again, verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. We can't do that on uh, as a regular basis as we would like to as an entire local body, but we can certainly do that in our family groups with this kind of joy. And so that's where really the working out of having like-mindedness takes place. Acts 15, verse 22, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brethren who are elders, to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This, I believe, will be our great privilege one day, that the elders of our church will gather with one mind and assign men to plant churches in other regions. It must be the result of like-mindedness, an engagement of the mind, looking closely together at the Scripture and pleading with the Lord to give us wisdom with regard to what it says. Romans 7, 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. That's a disengagement of the mind. You know the dilemma in Romans 7. Paul says, why do I do what I don't want to do? Why do I not do what I want to do? Disengagement of the mind. An allowance for the flesh to engage the law of sin rather than a willful effort for the mind to be focused on the truth of God's word. That's how. Nobody guarding the door. No sentry standing at his post, ready and willing to take sin on with the proper and informed weaponry. Paul makes it clear it is with the mind serving the law of God that the answer to the dilemma of non-sanctification is given. Romans 8, verse 6, For the mind set on the flesh is death. The mind set on the flesh is death. The mind that is fed fleshly things, whether it's movies or conversations or uh, allowances in the mind to uh, allow yourself to wander and let your mind meander into things that it shouldn't be thinking about. You say, well, that's not my fault. I can't stop it. Yes, you can. You must willfully engage the mind. The mind that is set on the flesh, focused on the flesh, is set on death. And there will be consequences. We can be certain of that. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God because their minds are only ever constantly focused upon the flesh and never on the Spirit. Romans 12, verse 16, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Recognize the reality that there are those around you who will exhibit greater wisdom, at least from time to time, and be willing to subject yourself to them as they attempt to inform your mind. Romans 14.5 One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own 
mind. Here, Paul is dealing with the liberty of preference. And he says, for some, he may want to worship on Tuesday. You want to worship on Sunday? Good for you. But don't criticize those who worship on Saturday. Each man must be settled in his own mind. But then in chapter 15, verse 5, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Jesus Christ. So there are parameters. There is a line that can be crossed. There are those preferences that a man must determine in his own mind, but there are biblical parameters upon which we absolutely must agree. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment thinking the same doctrinal thoughts. And, and there's no leeway for saying, well, I don't really agree with those doctrinal thoughts. I'll, I'll find a church that agrees with me on those doctrinal thoughts. Somebody's wrong. Somebody's wrong. It is crucial that we understand what we believe and that we are willing to go to the text of Scripture to understand it. This is why we work so hard to provide for you innumerable opportunities to really become a student of the Bible rather than somebody who is a reader of the Bible when you have a little time with your smartphone. But a person who diligently goes to the Word and pleads with the Lord to give proper spirit-filled understanding on a daily basis that we would be like-minded as we look at the truths of Scripture. Why? That we would be of the same judgment, that we would have unity. Further in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 14, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Isn't that interesting? If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also, with both. In other words, my spirit being who I am, and my mind being my intellect. I will do so with fervor and emotion, but I will also do with intellect and wisdom. Chapter 14, verse 18 of 1 Corinthians. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Philippians 1.27, Paul says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Philippians 2, verse 3, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, a mind focused on becoming humble, Less interested in self and more interested in others. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And then again from the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure... You see, this is a faithful pastor preparing people for his absence. One day in every church... And every faithful church throughout the world, one day the man who shepherds the flock will be gone. And so what will that flock do? Will they have been prepared? That's really the issue. You look at a man who's not discipling. He's not reproducing himself. He's doing absolutely nothing to prepare the flock for his absence. He's only doing everything he possibly can then to draw attention to himself. Here's Peter's words then. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, which is coming, you will be able to call these things to mind. You need to be able to remember the truths that I'm teaching you. And then in chapter 3 of 2 Peter, verse 1, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Enough said. The mind is crucial in the sanctifying process of the believer. 
It's crucial in terms of his productivity, his faithfulness to the body. R.C. Sproul has said, We're living in a period of church history that may be classified as mindless. It is an anti-intellectual period of Christian history, not anti-scientific or anti-technological or even anti-educational, but anti-mind. He goes on to say, Thinking is done by the mind, and Christians are called repeatedly in sacred scripture not to leave their minds in the parking lot when they enter into church, but to awaken their minds so that they may think clearly and deeply about the things of God. Some people say that God does not care about the mind, but only the heart, and that an emphasis on the mind leads to rationalism, and from there to modernism, postmodernism, and all else that stands in antithesis to biblical Christianity. It is true that what you think in your mind will never get you into the kingdom of God until it reaches your heart. But we have been created by God in such a way that the pathway to the heart is through the mind. We cannot love without passion that which we know nothing about. The book that contains the sacred revelation of Almighty God, His Word, is addressed in the first instance to our minds. Therefore, the more we understand the truth of God, the more we will be gripped by it in our hearts and changed by it. End quote. But remember that this is a call to prepare your minds in light of what Peter has just explained, not what you have always believed. The therefore harkens back to what Peter has just said, and it can't be ignored. You say, when can we get past all the issues of God's sovereignty? He's referring back to it. That's the whole point. The command that he gives is rooted in God's sovereign grace. Some people think that they are thinkers and that they engage the mind because they know how to be critical or negative. The ability to point out what is wrong does not make one a thinker or a discerner. It simply makes him a complainer. In the church, this makes for real danger. The man with some knowledge of the Bible combined with a critical spirit is like a 13-year-old with three karate lessons. He knows just enough to reveal that he doesn't know much and become dangerous to himself and others. Or worse, the stodgy older man who hasn't experienced the spiritual growth that comes with God's grace because he's been for so long deeply embedded in his thinking, his theology, his tradition, his beliefs that to bother him with what the Scripture actually says is offensive and typically dividing for him. The solution to this problem is discipleship. It's discipleship. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, imitate me as I imitate the Lord. Peter, discipled by Jesus, discipled men, and he taught them to think biblically, not complainingly. He taught them to be humble. He commanded younger men to humble themselves before older men. As he humbled himself before the mighty hand of God, God used him that men who followed him would also be humble and useful in discipleship. In Proverbs 10, verse 19, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. The man who is willing to engage his mind and think through the issues before he speaks up is the man that the Bible calls wise. Proverbs 29, verse 20, Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs 18, verse 2, A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. He just wants people to know what he thinks, and he wants them to acquiesce to what he thinks. He is not interested in actually being understanding. Isaiah 32, verse 6 says, For a, a fool speaks nonsense, and his heart inclines toward wickedness, to practice ungodliness, and to speak error against the Lord. Proverbs 17, 28, Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. Well here, Peter calls the believer to think 
rightly. To become a man whose words matter. A man whose words are indicative of the fact that he himself is worthy of emulation. Men would want to follow him. Because when he speaks, something comes out that's actually helpful. Because he has taken the time to engage his mind diligently. And he is willing to restrain his lips. Peter, as I said, calls the believer to think rightly in light of God's sovereign work and salvation, leading to a diligent devotion in the mind of the saved so that he may spring into action that is actually useful. Peter then goes on after having instructed us to gird up the loins of our mind or to prepare our minds, he then calls us to keep sober in spirit. And as you probably know from looking at the text of Scripture in your Bible, in spirit is not there in the Greek. It's italicized. But the idea is that it does take place within the person. That the person would be sober. This is a participle, even as the first verb that we looked at is a participle. Preparing your minds and being sober, and then we'll get to the main command in a bit, preparing your minds, being sober, or being self-controlled. In 1 Peter 4, verse 7, Peter says this, The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. There is the call upon every man's life and every woman's life to be sober so that prayer would be effective, that prayer would reflect the heart of God. And then in chapter 5, verse 8, Peter says, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The man who is either constantly non-sober because of something that he engages in or just a willful involvement to say, you know what, you know, the mind and all that stuff, it's not that really important to me. I'm just, you know, I'm just kind of a happy-go-lucky guy. How will that reflect what Peter is calling us to be? It won't. It can't. To be of sober spirit is absolutely essential for spiritual growth. Peter is calling us to have a clear mind, to not let your mind become clouded or cluttered. Don't be inebriated. Be sharp-minded. Sobriety is necessary for a prepared mind. If you're drunk or intoxicated, you can't prepare your mind and can't think straight. Why would one do that? Why would someone do that? Drink deeply. Not from substances that will cloud your thinking, but from the eternal well of God's unmerited favor upon you that will come in fullness at Christ's second coming. With right theology, the theology of chapter 1 in 1 Peter all the way up through verse 12, with right theology about your salvation and a sharp mind ready for action, laser focus your hope now on God's grace. Fix your hope completely on the grace of to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. May the grace that will be more fully manifested at your Savior's return be your ever-present passion. This phrase in your Bible and mine, fix your hope, is really one word, and it simply means hope. Hope with intensity, with fervor, with passion, with diligence. But it means to hope with expectation, not wishful thinking. Well, I sure hope I grow in 2014. I have certain hope that I will grow in 2014 because of God's sovereign grace. I can be certain that if I respond to the text of Scripture, not only with regard to what the command or the imperative is here, with regard to the theology that He has given to us that is the motivation for it, that I will grow spiritually. The person who bypasses those realities will spin his wheels. He'll be a complainer. He'll only constantly ever be critical. He'll only look for problems in others. Fix your hope completely on this grace. This is teleos from the same word used in John 19.30 where Jesus said it is finished. It is complete. Declaring the completion of His earthly work is 
in atoning for man's sins. Fix your hope completely or in a finished way on the grace of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Is that where you fix your hope? Are you motivated by something else? I confess that I am sometimes motivated by something other than God's grace. And the best response to that is to acknowledge it, confess it, forsake it, repent, and return to a laser focus on God's grace. How, though, do I fix my hope on grace? How does one do this? I confess that this was elusive to me for many years. Some almost two decades ago now, when my life was exposed for being duplicitous and unfaithful, and I had the privilege to sit under the counseling of godly men, John MacArthur said to me, Todd, you need to focus on God's grace. Now, I'd told John everything that my life was, the mess that it was, and I expected that there might be, well, thank you very much. It's been nice knowing you have a nice life. But that wasn't the answer I got at all. He, he said, you know, you're in a good spot. You need to focus on God's grace. You get back in seminary. You need to focus on your life. You get on into the ministry. Focus on God's grace. And I confess, I, I believe that that was the right thing to do, but I had no idea how to go about that. So I grabbed my concordance. Anybody got a concordance? You'll find the word grace in there many times. That's a great way to laser focus your life on God's grace. Read about God's grace in His Word. Here's a good example, and you won't find the word grace in this text, but it's a good example of an expression of God's grace. In Lamentations 3, verse 19, listen to this. Lamentations 3, 19, which is an expression of God's disciplinary hand upon His people. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me this I recall to my mind therefore I have hope the Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease for his compassions never fail they are new every morning great is your faithfulness the Lord is my portion says my soul therefore I have hope in him a mental laser focus upon the gracious heart attitude of God the Father who is a God of grace, who responds with grace to the repentant soul. Psalm 84, verse 11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. Psalm 3, verse 34, Though He scoffs at scoffers, yet He gives grace to the afflicted. John 1, verse 16, I I love this phrase, just the the little phrase at the end of the verse. For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. Literally, that reads grace instead of grace. You need grace instead of the grace that you've spurned, as do I. Because many times in our hearts and our lives, we reject God's grace, we spurn God's grace, we are not thankful for that which He has provided for us. And in so doing, God gives us more grace because He loves us. In Acts 4, verse 33, And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. An abundant grace was upon them all. See, that's a great way, if I can say it this way, to engage God's grace. To explain the gospel to someone. Because that is, in many senses, the gateway for a flood of God's grace to roll out. The delivery of the gospel. You sharing your faith in the gospel with someone else. Your faith in Christ, His atoning death and His resurrection. You share that. You receive God's grace. Perhaps that person receives God's grace. You extend grace to that person on your own behalf. But perhaps God ignites that person's soul. He illumines his eyes. He regenerates him in the moment. He causes him to be born again. And so there is a flood of grace in the moment. Romans 5, verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. This is a difficult text to understand upon a first reading, but let me explain it. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. 
Clearly, Paul is not saying that God gave his law so that people would sin more. But the point is that much like when you pull up to an intersection and there's no signage, but there is a yield law in the city and people are buzzing through that intersection even though there are other people that they should be waiting on, they're breaking the law. But when the stop sign goes up, it's now crystal clear. What's really happening is that an awareness of a breaking of the law now increases because the law is clear. In the same way, when the law was given, the transgressions increased. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Why? Because God's a God of grace and you and I need more grace. The more we sin, the more grace we need. And the somewhat um, unwilling listener might be thinking something like, oh, then great, I'll just sin more. Paul's ready for that. If you've read this text, you know. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Shall that person continue in sin? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. He goes on to explain that the person who has been granted new life, he won't do that. That won't be the character of his life. He won't want to continue in his sin. He, like Paul in Romans 7, a few chapters later, will want to have mastery over his sin. He'll still struggle with it. But he'll want that mastery and he'll gain it to some degree. But he won't want to live a life of presumptuous sin saying, I know it's not right, but God will forgive me. He's already promised me the more I sin, the more grace I get. Paul says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Romans 11, verse 5. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it. And the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. Why does someone become a Christian? <laughs> well, not because they surveyed all the world religions. You've heard people say that before. You know, I kind of thought through all the religions, and, you know, Buddhism made no sense to me. Hinduism, that's weird. You know, um, Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, those things, you know, I didn't get any of that stuff. You know what made sense to me was Christianity. So I chose to, I chose to be a Christian. That, there might be a little bit of truth in the way that person remembers it. But ultimately, if a person is in Christ, it's because of God's grace. It is because of God's gracious choice, according to the text I just read to you. And so what is the result? We will want to focus on God's grace. We'll want instruction on how to focus on God's grace. We'll want to have unity with the body rooted in God's grace. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10 Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. You know a man who is in the, the ministry who is prideful, boastful, who would, who would not speak this way about what God has accomplished? Let me tell you, I'm, I'm just dumb enough to be certain beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is not doing what he is doing in our church because of my talent or my abilities or, or my somehow self-made strengths. There is absolutely no temptation in my heart ever to think that the Lord is doing what he is doing because of some greatness in me. That is a ridiculous thought. And the man who thinks that way has a very, very difficult future right around the corner at some point. And I don't speak that because I think myself to be humble. I say that because I believe God is doing a great work. And I'm aware of the fact that he does a great work through that which is foolish. He confounds the wise by using someone who is not in a position to draw glory or attention to himself. He does what he does 
because he chooses to do it. Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Which is it? Which is it? I labored more than anyone, Paul says, but not I, the grace of God. He's not discounting what he has just said. He's saying, I am diligent to study hard. I am diligent to minister to the flock. I am committed to be faithful, to agonize over the text of Scripture, to say that which God has said. I am willing to to give up nights of sleep for the sake of the flock. I am willing to sacrifice and give and do all that's necessary for the sake of the body of Christ. Yet it's not me, it's the grace of God. You understand that. The point is that because of grace, he wants to do those things, and it's no issue for him. That is the man upon whom God has placed his hand and called him to the ministry. The man that wants to do those things because he has understood that it is by grace that he is saved and not by works. It's a gift of God that he doesn't deserve. It is unmerited favor. Again, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So that's the issue. God's grace manifests in the faithfulness of the believer to communicate truth, and people will be saved. People will be saved then. By grace. Galatians 1, verse 6, Paul says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. This is perplexing to me. Paul said the same thing to the Galatians. They perplexed him when they knew that they were growing spiritually. And it was the result of God's grace. God was doing a work of grace in them. They acknowledged that they were saved by grace and they abandoned it for a gospel of works. Communicating legalism to others. You must do this, you have to do that. You gotta be circumcised, you gotta do these works, you gotta obey the law, you gotta fulfill the law to maintain your salvation. That's legalism. On the other hand, Paul would go on to explain to the Galatians that God's grace leads to obedience. It leads to willful, enjoyable obedience. Titus 3, verse 7. So that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You want to focus on that, don't you? I mean, don't you want to be so ready, so prepared for the person who's hurting, dying inside, having great difficulty? That is the privilege that you and I not only have, but must be willing to engage in on a regular basis. And too often, there is a willingness on our parts to draw a line. Say, oh, that sin crosses the line. That sin is way worse than anything I ever did. I mean, I've done some bad things, but I never did that. And so now we've denied the reality of what Paul says in Colossians 3 about the condition of our souls prior to our salvation. Your role, my role, focus on grace, be ready to extend grace. That is the huge privilege of being in Christ that we would meditate upon God's grace. And as a result of that, we ourselves would see the work that God will do in us as we do that. If we will keep sober in spirit, fixing our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 5, verse 5, Peter says, You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And then here's the concomitant blessing with being willing to clothe yourself with humility. God gives grace to the humble. See, to focus on God's grace is to long to be humble. To really want to be the person who considers others as more important than self. Thinking first of their concerns, their needs. Looking out 
for others in a way that exhibits humility should be the mark of every Christian's life. And as we mature, that is what happens. And God gives grace to that person who is humble. But the real focus, although uh, Peter is certainly leading us to meditate on grace, the pinnacle focus here is the grace to come. Although this grace is yours now, it will be revealed in full when Christ returns. So the, the practical and I think necessary question is, how much time do you or I spend thinking about meditating on not only the return of Christ, but the grace that will be ours in fullness when He returns? Revelation 22, verse 20 says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I'm coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. It should be our willful intent to diligently hope in God's grace. Can you see how in your own life, if you were to look back and do an inventory, those moments where you were unsettled and spiritually unbalanced, maybe a, a little bit angry, a little bit focused on disunity, you see a correlation between that and a focus on something other than God's grace. I assure you that if you find yourself willfully focused on God's grace, diligently hoping in God's grace, repenting of that sometimes embittered devotion to prove others wrong and to do that which is only going to result in disunity, if you will find yourself willing to obey the command here to be the person who sets his mind, girds his loins for action, the, the loins of his mind for activity mentally, and will keep a sober spirit, uncluttered and unclouded by things that clutter and cloud, and then willfully committed to being fixed on the hope of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that is to come, your life will be altered drastically. The result will be that you'll be less frustrated with others and more impactful in their lives. You'll be less willing to criticize and to slander and to gossip and more willing to pray and discuss and think and engage in edification and fellowship, really thinking through things together so that God's glory would be manifest. As we do that together, I rejoice what the Lord has accomplished to this day. We'll spend our time together next week finishing up verses 15 through 16, 14 through 16 actually. And as we do that, I want to encourage you to be thinking about how you will yourself engage your mind more fully. We have a website where on a weekly basis we've provided music for you to worship the Lord Jesus Christ with, to focus on His grace that you would become increasingly mature. We've provided an opportunity for you to read through the Bible on a daily basis, all the way through the Bible in a year, perhaps. If you want to go at a faster pace, you can do that. But with the next round of website material that we're going to post, we're going to give you four or five Bible reading plans. And I strongly encourage you to go there. Maybe you already do that. Maybe you already got a really good plan and that's working well for you. Praise God, I'm not asking you to divert from that. But if you have struggled with this idea of keeping your mind focused on the grace of God, I feel strongly that one of my roles is to assist you in that, to help you, to make it a smoother process, a, an easier process of being in the Word on a regular basis rather than kind of just haphazardly grabbing a passage out of the air here and there for you know, your encouragement or someone else's, but really being steadily devoted to a daily portion of God's Word, that there is a dosage in your day, every day, that prepares you for your own spiritual growth and for the growth of others, that Christ would be glorified. Father, we thank You for this immensely clear text calling us to 
while preparing our minds for action, while remaining sober in spirit, that we would, in fact, fix our hope completely, fully, on the grace to be brought to us at the second coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask now that as we spend this time together that unity would prevail, that we would experience the unity of the Spirit, unity that can only be stirred and accomplished by You, that we would think rightly with regard to the text of Scripture, that we wouldn't insert our traditions or our emotion or our own efforts to come up with ideas and thoughts or even copying those of others, but that we would really lean entirely exclusively upon you, the Spirit of God, to accomplish in us like-mindedness as we engage our minds. Lord, help us now as we sing to you to bring honor to you. We ask this all in Christ's name.